All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8 and put in at verse 28. We're going to look down into verse 47, Lord willing. John 8, 28 through 47, the topic, Jesus stuns the religious authorities of Israel, telling them, you are of your father, the devil. The title of our message, Father Lucifer has many sons, and many sons has Father Lucifer. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we want to get right into it this morning, so we just acknowledge that we are here to listen to your spirit as he speaks to us through the word of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. My president is Charlton Heston. Bumpers and rear windows in all 50 states proudly hosted that sticker in the late 1990s. Charlton Heston was a five-term president of the National Rifle Association, 1998 to 2003. To support his Second Amendment activism, Heston moonlighted as an actor. Yeah, I know, it's a groaner. He was in a few feature films, actually around 100, uh, spanning 60 years. For a time, he was the man. Ten Commandments, Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green, Midway, The Omega Man, Tombstone. Who else could deliver such iconic lines as, those who will not live by the law shall die by the law? Or, take your stinking paws off me, you dirty ape. And then, of course, the greatest line, Soylent Green is people. I've just, we've just, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, for anybody who's not seen Soylent Green, which was like, 300 years ago, so I don't feel bad about that. He headlined the greatest movie of all time. Released in 1959, Ben-Hur has everything you could ask for in a, a film, and it has something more. It has Jesus. The full title of the book from which the film was made is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. Published in 1880, it is considered the most influential book of the 19th century. The story recounts the persecution of Judah Ben-Hur, a wealthy Jew from Jerusalem. He is wrongfully convicted by the Romans and sentenced to row in the Roman galleys for the rest of his life. He survives his ordeal as a galley slave and saves the life of Arius, the commander of his ship. Arius adopts Judah as his own son. When he was adopted, Judah Ben-Hur went from slave to having the status of a son. The Jewish authorities thought they were sons, but Jesus said they were slaves. When the Lord promised that those who believe in him will be made free, the Pharisees understood Jesus considered them slaves. The Jews claimed that being descended from Abraham gave them the status of sons. Jesus would tell them that their dad was the devil. In contrast, Jesus tells those who believe in him they have been set free. They are no longer slaves, they are sons. Jesus said, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Jesus used adoption as a metaphor of what it means to believe in him. The adoption metaphor continues on into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is the New Testament's adoption specialist. He said, Jesus came that we might receive adoption to sonship. He said, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, and he said, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, the adoption was first offered to Israel. Romans 9.4 says theirs was the adoption to sonship. 
But when Israel rejected Jesus Christ, their adoption was put on hold. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, believer, believe you are adopted. And number two, non-believer, believe you are a slave. Let's take a look at the adopted sons in verses 28 through 32. There are only 210 shopping days until Christmas. You might think twice about gifting someone with a DNA test. Here's a quote. I have seen a substantial increase in paternity cases over the past few years, said Adam Wolf, a lawyer specializing in fertility lawsuits. Our clients typically call in February after receiving the results of the at-home DNA test they received for the holidays. Don't say I didn't warn you. The creator of DNA was about to announce to the Jews who their real father was. Metaphors are one way our gracious Heavenly Father communicates aspects of His love and grace. Uh, it, it just, it, I, I wanted to say imagine, but we can't, but just think of how hard it would be for a divine, thrice holy being like our, the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, to communicate with you and I. It, it's harder than us talking to ants, really. I mean, you know. Uh, don't you get frustrated talking to ants and then smash them? I mean, you know, they don't seem to get it. Say, hey, go over here and I'll leave you alone. And they just keep, you know, talking to each other. What's he saying? What's he saying? With their little chemical transfer and then you got to smash them and then you realize they're on you. Wow. Anyway, uh, I'm having an ant flashback. But uh, uh, I don't know why I said that anyway. But, uh, oh, metaphors. And so God is able, and he uses multiple metaphors and multiple metaphors within single metaphors. For example, Christians are compared to a household, to the servants in the household, the steward over the household, and sons in the household. They are not meant to compete. Each one teaches a different truth or comes from a different point of view about God. And so they are all true simultaneously, but they are all teaching different truth. The, adoption, uh, the doctrine rather of adoption doesn't get much press among Christians. You don't hear people talking about adoption very much uh, when the uh, benefits of being a Christian are listed out. I'm guilty of it myself. But it should get a lot more press. It encourages us that as sons, all the privileges and blessings of the Christian life, both present and future, belong to us. J.I. Packer writes, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest. So I want to at least make sure today that when we leave, we have a grasp of adoption, since it is such an important concept. And so verse 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus had been teaching in the temple, some scribes and Pharisees confronted him. Son of man was the primary title by which Jesus identified himself. It pointed the Jews to a specific prophecy in the book of Daniel where a being comes, the son of man who is the Messiah. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he is absolutely saying to them, I am the Messiah. I'm that guy. Lifted up is how Jesus described his death on the cross. It too pointed back, in this case, to the 21st chapter of the Old Testament book of Numbers. Israel was suffering a judgment for sin. Serpents were sent into their camp, and their bite was immediately fatal. 
Moses was commanded to make a bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up so that everyone could see it. Any Israelite who merely looked at the pole was spared from death. It's a type of the future cross upon which Jesus would die. Jesus lifted up on the cross draws all men to himself. Any who believe are saved. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy, he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. His death on the cross was accompanied with things, uh, certain phenomena by which they would know he was their Messiah. And so even after his death and resurrection, or at this point his death, uh, they, uh, God was still communicating to them, trying to show them that Jesus was their Messiah. For one thing, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Humanly impossible, but it happened. The earth quaked and the rocks were split, we read in Matthew 27, probably a local phenomena there in Jerusalem. Many deceased saints were simultaneously raised from the dead and seen in Jerusalem. We often miss this because, it's, I don't know why, it just is a slight mention of it, and we think maybe if it was true, there should be more. But again, in Matthew 27, I believe it says that uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, some Jewish saints rose from the dead and went and played ding-dong ditch, I guess, you know, from door to door and, you know, revealed themselves to people and as a first fruits of those who would follow. The stone of his tomb was rolled away by uh, revealing an empty tomb, and there was a great earthquake then when an angel rolled away the stone. And so all of these phenomena took place surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus to continue to witness to his messiahship. Then in verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Always is quite a claim. Can you imagine anyone other than Jesus saying, I always please God? There's never a time I've not pleased God. I can't say it. Some of you may be closer to saying it, but you really can't. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible thing. If your kid said this, it's the time for you always do what pleases me. Is that why you threw a brick through my windshield? Or, you know, oh, we're just playing brick, Dad. Uh, but anyway, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. The higher you aspire to some position, the deeper the dive that is taken into your background. Think of the worst hearings to approve a justice to the Supreme Court and the things that they dredge up to try and get them disqualified. The religious authorities would go all the way back to Jesus' conception and suggest he was illegitimate, immediately disqualifying him. His conception was miraculous. The virgin birth was necessary to qualify him, not to disqualify no one with a sinful human nature could die for the sins of the world. Conceived as he was by God the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, Jesus was born without a sinful human nature. He was a second Adam sent to redeem and restore what the first Adam had ruined. Verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now, we are not among those who believe that the Bible teaches there is a second chance for salvation after death. I wish there were. Nor do we see any kind of universalism in the Bible that everyone will somehow be saved. I wish they were. Nor do we see what is called annihilationism by which non-believers simply cease to exist as if they never existed. That's not true either biblically. What is true is the lake of fire into which all non-believers and all wicked angels will be confined for an eternity of conscious torment. Nevertheless, having said that, I like these two words, many believed. Many believed. And here's why. 
I think there are going to be a lot more people in heaven than we realize. Imagine Old Testament saints. When they died, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I've told you many times, when a person died, a non-believer went to Hades to a compartment of suffering. Believers went to Hades to a compartment that was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so imagine an Old Testament saint arriving in paradise and looking around and seeing Abraham's carnal, compromising nephew, Lot. You made it? No way. When did they lower the standards? <laughs> Truth is, so many of these Old Testament guys, if God didn't really let you know ahead of time or at the end of their story that they were saved, you wouldn't let them into the church, probably. I mean, these guys made terrible mistakes. Now, grace doesn't abound. Where, grace abounds where sin abounds, but we don't sin that grace might abound. So don't get me wrong. Uh, you, you have to accept Jesus Christ to be saved. I'm just saying that God is going to uh, see to it that many are there that we would not expect. And, and so, uh, you know, hold that up. People ask me, you know, so-and-so a Christian? And a lot of times, you know, I say, hey, I don't know. There are some people I'm pretty confident that are not Christians because they tell you, I am not a Christian. I'm going to die. I don't care. Uh, I've talked to people like that. I had one guy, he wouldn't even let me pray for him over the phone. Uh, he was so hardcore and stuff. And so even then, I know, well, you know, Lord, it, it, that's up to you. Uh, I, I do know that people get saved in comas. Uh, that happened to us once. It was interesting. Uh, the Lord showing us that's what. So, you know, we just throw it out there and say, I, I think you're going to be surprised. It doesn't mean anybody skates by, no second chance, none of those things I mentioned. But uh, a lot of people who we would disqualify for heaven, I think God sees the heart. Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The freedom promised in the Bible is freedom from sin and its penalty, death, revealed in God's law. Our friends at gotquestions.org define our freedom in Christ saying this, before Jesus died on the cross, God's people lived under a detailed system of laws the law was powerless to grant salvation or produce true freedom. It pointed to Jesus Christ. Through his sacrificial death, Jesus fulfilled the law, setting believers free from sin and death. God's laws are now written in our hearts through the Spirit of God, and we are free to follow and serve Christ in ways that please and glorify him. A born-again, baptized into the body, spirit-filled, transformed, new creation in Jesus can abide and not attempt life in their own strength. Adopted as a son, you have everything you need for godliness. Jesus did not use the word adoption. He didn't need to. It was understood from reading this or from listening to this. Adoption was the way you were elevated from slave to son. And so when he's talking about going from a slave to a son, he's talking about adoption. Paul loved this metaphor. I'm going to read in full one of the passages I quoted earlier. <clears throat> Paul said, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. No longer slaves, but sons. 
is the promise Jesus made to those who believe. There is no need to over-explain this. There are, uh, I'm not saying it's wrong or there's anything wrong with it, but sometimes in the commentaries, people will launch out into now all of the details of a proper Roman adoption or all of the details of a proper Jewish adoption, looking for different clues and stuff. And, and you know, I don't think anybody's a liar, but uh, I, I don't know that everything happens just the same way all the time, you know. Uh, I mean, just think of, think if, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, if people were looking back and saying, well, I wonder how they did church in the, you know, 22, in the year 2022. And they picked any of the churches in just, you know, the one. And they said, well, and they said, well, this is how they did church. You know, this happened and that happened. And we would say, well, no, that's not how we did church. I mean, we're all Christians. We all love each other. But, and so, so you, don't know, you don't need to know about Roman adoption or Jewish adoption because you understand adoption. One minute you were, as Popeye said, an orphink. And no, you don't remember that, Popeye? You know who Popeye is? Popeye the sailor man? Who does not know Popeye the Sailor Man? Uh, you can leave right now. But no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, you, know, you, you go from the status of an orphan to the status of a son or a daughter. When a couple is going through an adoption, they are anxious to hear four words. The adoption is final. And, and they rejoice because now that child is legally theirs, a son or a daughter. If you are a believer, your adoption is final. It was finalized the instant you were saved. You're not building up to it. You're not an orphan trying to have brownie points. You're adopted as a full son or daughter. So let's make one application before moving on. Whereas a slave might beg for resources, a son would have full access to them. Apply that to the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit in your life. Should we beg for something that God has already given us? No, because we're sons. We just receive him and live as though he really is living with us, in us, residing in us. And so it's a powerful thing, this adoption. Non-believer, believe you are a slave. Your father's not your father when DNA tests reveal more than you bargained for. There are many articles like that. It could be the headline for our remaining verses. The Jews were going to find out that their father was not their father. They answered him, verse 33, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? The Jews understood by his use of the word free that he was suggesting they were slaves. They objected, claiming they had never been slaves. Israel was subjected by Egypt, Babylon, Persia, and Rome. The northern kingdom, Israel, was destroyed by Assyria. The Jews were not thinking, though, in mere political terms. They, they weren't writing revisionist history. They knew they had been slaves. They were giving what might be described as an internal definition of freedom. In spite of political oppression, they thought of themselves as free sons of Abraham who had never ultimately inwardly bowed to foreign rule. And the proof was that there they were, uh, a nation still, under Rome, yes, but uh, no one seemed to be able to crush the Jews, and so they had this pride. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So he's concentrating on the fact that they are slaves, 
And he says it's because they have a habit of sinning. Were they sinning? Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you're seeking to kill me because your word ha- his word has no place in you. And so I would say that murder qualifies as a sin. And, and this is all, these guys were all about trying to get rid of Jesus, and they had already started to contemplate murdering him, killing him, how they could do it that way, because they didn't seem to come up with any ideas on their own. Their desire to murder him was a pretty good indicator they were sinning, that they were slaves of someone else, not sons of God. The word of God was not penetrating their hardened hearts. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Like father, like son. Jesus is about to give them their spiritual DNA results. If there were envelopes in those days, he would open it and he could be reading it to them, but he's just going to give it to them. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the work, uh, works rather, of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. They in no way resembled Abraham. Abraham heard from God and he shared it. Jesus heard from God and he shared it. Uh, People believed Abraham. Uh, These guys rejected Abraham through rejecting Jesus. The works of Abraham are declared in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram, before he got his name changed, he was Abram, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's the great statement in the Bible about justification by faith. Uh, You believe God. Here's how you get saved. In the Garden of Eden, in the antediluvial world, after the flood, uh, all the Old Testament and in the New Testament and further into the millennial kingdom, you get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When you believe God, he credits you righteousness that you cannot earn or deserve. Your ledger is full of unrighteousness. It's like when you checked your stock market report this morning. All gone. There's nothing there, and then you know it's as if the next time you check, you, you're a multimillionaire because God has made a deposit, and so you believe. It can be hard to believe that all a person must do to be saved is believe, but it's all that you can do that isn't a work. You can do nothing else but believe. But you can believe because the Holy Spirit comes, and as we've seen, He draws all men to Himself, to Jesus rather and uh, freeze their will so that they can make a decision to trust Christ and believe him. And so Jesus says, or excuse me, John says in verse 41, Jesus saying, you do the deeds of your father. Then they say to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They believe their physical descent guaranteed their sonship. I believe this growing up, not because I was a Jew, but because I was of the chosen race, the Italians. (laughs) After all, uh, you know, pretty big argument that the Vatican is in Rome, right? Because God wanted to be closer to the Italians than, anyway, I be- you laugh, but I believe that, lived my life by that principle for years uh, until I got saved. Really, you know, the Roman Catholicism is a great religion because you, you can be a priest if you want to be, I don't know who would, but, uh, you know, and, and be super holy, I guess, or you can do anything you want and still be saved in the end. And so, uh, you know, with those second chances in purgatory. I remember and this, not funny, but, I, you know, my dad, when I was talking to him uh, a couple of weeks before he died, you know, I, I, I said, Dad, there's, there's no, 
you know, purgatory and stuff. He goes, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll be there for a thousand years and then I'll be in heaven. I said, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, so uh, I wish it would. And so Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They believed their physical descent guaranteed their sonship. They not subtly pointed to the suspicious birth of Jesus. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. The Lord was no illegitimate son. He was sent by his father. If the Jews did not love him, it was proof they did not love the father, no matter their protest, because they were the same in character and nature. See, having Jesus was like having the father on earth. He would tell his own disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so you couldn't despise Jesus and want to murder him and love God. It was impossible. They could not receive the word of God. One reason is they, and this can be proven historically, they were looking for a Messiah who would throw off the political bondage of Rome. Uh, and him they would receive. And so even though John the Baptist announced the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, and Jesus came doing so many miracles that they couldn't even be cataloged and, and could never be tripped up you know, in his speaking and, and they never found any reason to accuse him. They, they ultimately killed him to get rid of him because he wasn't promising material deliverance. He was promising a spiritual deliverance. And their bias towards having that kind of Messiah caused them to crucify the Son of Man. We have biases and only the Lord can reveal them to us. Uh, we have ethnic biases, we have uh, you know, national biases, cultural biases, just because of the way you were raised. If you have 17 or 18 hours sometimes, I'll tell you some stories about, I've told you a lot of stories, but you haven't heard the half of it in terms of how I was raised. It's amazing I am sane, or I should say as sane as I am, but uh, it, you know, it's crazy and, and you bring these this load of, uh, of junk to the Word of God. And so we want to get deeper into the Word by eliminating those things. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And the desires of, desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The Jews were like the devil. He's a murderer from the beginning. By the success of his temptation, he robbed Adam of spiritual life and through him brought death to the entire human race. Uh, you know, he might say, hey, I didn't kill anybody. And, you know, it's kind of a Manson thing, you know. It just everybody, everybody I told to do stuff and they did it for me and stuff. And, and so he was an accessory to their murder. But he, you know, Satan brought death, really, when he was successful in his temptation. The devil is a liar. He told the very first lie that Adam and Eve would be like God if they disobeyed him. Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. D.A. Carson writes, the children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
Another, he, it's a rhetorical question. None of them could convict him of lying or of sinning. He was telling the truth. And so why were they not believing him? They would accuse him of breaking the laws of the Sabbath, of blaspheming, making himself equal with God. Later in this chapter, they will say he was demon-possessed. None of those charges were true, and none of them ever stuck, and yet they decided not to believe in Jesus. They, they just ignored the evidence completely. It would be like some courtroom situation where it was obvious what had happened, and any person could see it, and the jury just totally ignored the evidence because of you know, uh, either hatred or love on either side. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Verse 47, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Edward Clink writes, I think he was a colonel at the time. <laughs> I don't know, who's named Clink besides Colonel Clink? I mean, since they belong to the devil, they do not belong to God. They are quite simply illegitimate children. The spiritual heritage they claim for themselves is a lie from the devil. For all its unfathomable depth, the Bible can be simple. You are either a slave or you are a son. Everyone starts life as a slave to sin, the devil, and death. We are born spiritually dead into a world system that is described as total darkness. We can only be saved from slavery and the final destination of the lake of fire by adoption into the family of God. Adoption is included in the salvation package. When you see Jesus lifted up for your sins and you believe him, you are born again, you are baptized into the body of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, and your adoption into the family of God is finalized. You are a full son or daughter at that moment. And earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, a son abides how long in the household? forever. And so this is a very powerful thing, adoption. Tim Keller writes, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. You don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only for him. There is nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It is simply received. Earlier, I used the word Abba a couple of times. I wasn't referencing the Dancing Queen Swedish pop band. You'll have that song in your head all day now. Yeah. This is the Dancing Queen. It is an Aramaic word used for the relationship between a father and son, an intimate relationship. It's like calling your father Papa or Daddy. The word is found three times in the New Testament. Jesus addresses his father as Abba Father in his prayer in Gethsemane. Romans 8.15, Abba Father is mentioned in relation to the Spirit's work of adoption that makes us God's children and heirs with Jesus. And then in Galatians 4.6, again in the context of adoption, the Spirit of our hearts cries out, Abba Father. Some people think it's irreverent to approach God, uh, well, in any less than a formal way. I mean, if you were at a prayer meeting and somebody, and they said, let's pray, and somebody goes, oh, Papa, oh, Dad. I mean, all of us would have, uh, I haven't heard that before. Christians always want to be so careful. You know, you want to, especially praying. Praying's tough, right? You, you know, a lot, that's one of the hardest things, it seems, for Christians to do is pray out loud. 
And I don't, that's fine. Nobody's, we're not going to force you to pray out loud. Uh, you know, we're, we're really calm about prayer around here. You notice that? We're passive. We try to passively encourage you to pray, but we're not going to force anybody to pray. The microphone's not going to come around because it's tough and you want to get it right. And you don't want to sound stupid and, you know, but, but really you're just talking to your father. But in a prayer meeting, it, very rarely is it that intimate. And you think, well, maybe we should address God as father here. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who talk in normal terms and say, well, let's pray. Oh, God, <laughs> almighty God enthroned of the universe. <laughs> Reverend, I don't know, you know, and stuff. So now I, I'm aware of the rumors that I can be irreverent. Not, you know, I'm doing as best as I can for a former sociopath. And so just, <laughs> I don't mean to be irreverent. I, I do, I will admit that I joke a little bit too much, but, you know, wh who doesn't like a good black humor kind of situation, you know? So anyway, maybe it's from being a chaplain or probably from my upbringing, but that's a psychiatric matter. So anyway, um, <laughs> but listen, I don't know how you apply all this, except in your, your, your dad is God. He's your Abba, he's your Papa, he's your whatever, you know, your culture calls it. It's not irreverent. If you're a father, mothers too, you're, you're in on this, do you want your kids to keep their distance and always be formal? Do you want a household where your son goes up, you know, he, he, let's say your son or daughter so goes, you go through the mother who's like this, mom, mother, can I see Mr. Pensiero? Your father is busy right now, but I'll page him. We had him on the intercom. Can you see your daughter right now? Uh, no. Tell her to listen to Cats in the Cradle. <laughs> or, nobody wants to have that. <laughs> nobody wants to have that kind of relationship with their kids, right? So why would God want to have that kind of relationship? He said, hey, I, Jesus died for you. I tore the veil in the temple so that we could meet face to face. So get off of it with this Mr. stuff. I mean, I'm your dad. Now, again, it's metaphorical. So God is also your father. He is also God who is inapproachable and all of these things. And so we have to be well-rounded in this. But I think we need to start being more aware of the sonship of the adoption. You are an adopted son or daughter right now you know who your father is. He is your almighty papa, and he has everything for you for life and godliness. It's yours already. You have the inheritance.